everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Catherine Druckmann. And Doc Searles is joining us along with our regular guest, Petros Katupis, and a new guest, <laughs> Travis Carden, who I am lucky enough to occasionally get to work with and who maintains an open source project called Orca that is a testing tool for Drupal software. Um, before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone again to go sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can sign up at reality2cast.com. That is the number two and follow the newsletter link. Uh, we also just posted a link to buy some fun podcast related swag. So please visit the store link too, if you are so inclined. And then I also wanted to give a shout out to our Patreon uh, supporters. Thank you very much for your support. Now onto the, to the meat of the show. Uh, first, I should mention that I very rarely talk about the work I do. Uh, so this will be a fun opportunity to do that. And second, I should also mention that Travis is awesome. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with him on an amazing team made up of some of the best minds working on the Drupal project. And somehow I got to work with them too, which was almost like uh, maybe getting to fly the Millennium Falcon on the level of coolness for me personally. So anyway, Travis is one of those minds. And we're going to talk to him today about all, all sorts of things related to open source projects, including testing, maintainership, contribution, and mentorship. So uh, stick around because it's going to be fun. So Travis, first, we would love for you to introduce yourself a bit. Yeah, well, thank you for that very generous introduction. Um, for uh, filling in the gaps, if there were any important ones, um, I work at Acquia, as you said, where I, uh, where I have worked for six or seven years, I think at this point, I was in the professional services organization for the first five or so. And then I moved into engineering after that. I moved there for the express purpose of taking on the automated testing kind of initiative to standardize the testing practices and platform for all of our distributable packages at Acquia, meaning our Drupal modules and packages to packages. And uh, at work, those are probably the most important things that I would want people to, to know about me uh, on the strictly professional background level. On a more personal level, uh, I am really passionate about mentorship and uh, it excites me to work with other people and invest in them and in their careers. We're going to discuss open source in this podcast and that has proved to be a really great vehicle and context for mentorship. And so I'm excited to discuss the way both maintainers and seasoned contributors can use their projects as a platform for helping other people and how newer and younger contributors can get into open source, not only as a way of giving back, but also as a way of growing professionally and learning and getting kind of built-in mentorship, uh, if you will, uh, on the um, entirely not work personal front. I am a husband and a father of two girls, 11 and 12 years old right now. And uh, they asked me if I was going to be on TV with this podcast. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I told them probably not. <laughs> no, we do, we do not use the video because I would have put on makeup or something. I don't know. <laughs> so, Travis, where are you in the world, in the, in the physical world? I am in North Carolina in the United States. Where in North Carolina? Uh, it's Garner. It's a suburb. I know. It's of southeast of Raleigh. Raleigh. I, I lived in Chapel Hill and Raleigh and Durham. Oh, did you? For many years, yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, that would be kind of right between me and the Durham Drupal meetup group. Ah, oh, cool. Cool. So, so Travis, so the other thing that, that we... Uh, we mentioned earlier is just um, your experiences maintaining an open source project, but, but also just contributing to open source and mentoring other contributors within, within that um, project. And I wondered, uh, uh, you know, I think Petrus and Doc may have a few more questions about that. 
so I have a friend who used to work, actually worked with Linus Torvalds at uh, Transmet or whatever the company was. And he said that all, all programmers are either cowboys or engineers. And he went into what those were all about. But I'm wondering whether in dealing with, I mean, in dealing, in mentoring, you have to deal with psychology. You're dealing with human beings, right? And so I'm wondering if you've got any insights about that or what you've learned about people in the process or categorizing them or you know, trying to make sense of them in different ways. Yeah, there's so much that could be said on that subject. Um, and it's, it's a subject that I really enjoy. I was really looking forward to talking about this when uh, Catherine proposed my coming on the podcast. As to the psychology of contribution and mentorship, I think that probably the first thing that anyone needs to know who is trying to solicit and coordinate contribution from other people is that everybody feels inadequate. <laughs> um, uh, it, everybody has like um, um, imposter syndrome, right? Like I've got an inferior, inferiority complex, but it's not a very good one even. Um, that, was, that was a joke. It was too hilarious. <laughs> um, but that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, that's one of the things that I've always run into fast is that even people who are excited about something will oftentimes feel incompetent to participate in it. So just creating an ethos, creating a, an environment that feels welcoming and encourages small contributions and mistakes, <laughs> I think it is really important. I find that you, you can kind of cultivate a small number of contributors that you invest in very heavily and then empower them to multiply that effect by mentoring other people. Uh, I, I would be disingenuous, I think, to give the impression that I'm highly experienced or well accomplished in this area. I have a handful of projects that I maintain and others that I contribute to, but I'm, I'm not like an expert on these subjects, so I can give my experience, but it was, it's interesting to me that you, you, um, you know, mentors can make mentors. That's an interesting yeah. angle on it because you yeah. want people to, you want it to kind of roll forward also to relieve you of work. Right. I suppose. With it's that. true. At, at, at Acquia, we're a Drupal company and uh, our CTO is the project founder and uh, inventor, I suppose, of Drupal, uh, Dries Beitart. And it, it's very interesting to listen to him talk. He's discussed over the years a lot of these dynamics. Uh, Drupal began as, uh, in, a, in a story that I think is fantastic, uh, when Dries was uh, in, in university, I think, he was rooming with some folks and he started Drupal as a bulletin board to share grocery lists <laughs> with, with wow. the folks uh, in, in the rooms adjacent to him. <laughs> and then it just kind of grew in uh, functionality incrementally uh, until it became something that he decided the rest of the world could benefit from. And he talks about how early on it, it was such a small um, and maintainable thing in terms of a, a single maintainer uh, that when he made API changes, breaking API changes to Drupal core, he would go out and just fix the modules that <laughs> like third party or contributed modules that other people owned. He would just go fix them himself <laughs> to work with the updated APIs. Uh, and obviously now Drupal is uh, massive uh, international phenomenon. I, I think last time I heard it was 
something like uh, one in 20 websites on the internet is supposed to be powered by Drupal. And uh, he no longer fixes other people's modules. <laughs> um, so that's, that's something that's been essential to the growth of Drupal is this kind of multiplication of, of effort. Yeah, that's a good point. You, you can't sustain an epic open source project with a handful, the same handful of developers forever, right? Mm-hmm. That's a familiar story, that, though. Uh, you know, just a small project while you're in college serves a small purpose and then just evolves from that. You know, I, I think I think we've heard that story many times in this industry, haven't we? I, I think Linux Journal um, went on Drupal in like 2003 or four. It was right after we wrote a piece um, about uh, comparing blogging uh, software and went back when everything was blogging and um uh and and i'm pretty sure that Dries actually worked directly with us on that <laughs> you know that it so so i'm wondering so as it grew i mean there's so many things that don't let me put it another way um you know hanging out in silicon valley for a long time i'm not i don't live there now but i'm functionally i'm still there uh is because everything is everywhere um it seemed to me like every company has three stages of growth. There's new, there's hot, and there's big. And they are different, right? When you're new, you've got this crew of people. Usually starts with one person or a few people, and everybody's working very long hours and you know, and and it's all it's all kind of crazy. And then hot is this other stage where you've got the next round of VC money, you hire a whole lot more people and marketing comes in and and lawyers come in and stuff like that, but it grows through that. And then when it gets to be big, it's very divisionalized. And my guess is that uh, Acquia, because I remember when, when Dries started Acquia, it was like, you know, he came to Boston and I was in Boston at the time. And in fact, I introduced him at a talk he gave one time and it was a new thing. It was like, I'm going to start a company for this thing. And he moved to Boston for that. And now it's relatively gigantic and he's kind of stepped back and kind of stayed in this one role. So I'm wondering if, you know, is there a stage beyond where you are now, uh, where Drupal is now, where it just continuously matures is kind of in the big stage or, you know, or maybe just kind of grows horizontally and you add new maintainers and new, and new ways of expanding sideways? You're asking about the future of Drupal? To some degree, yeah. And, or it, it doesn't have to be about Drupal, but the, 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 the growth path of companies like that that are built on open source started with one, one guy scratching an itch, to, mm -hmm. you know, you know, Linus was a hobby really. I mean, kind of a, just a little project for Linus. Uh, uh, MySQL very similar. These guys just want to do a different database, you know, and it went this way and um, you know, and you know, Dries had his grocery list, you know, and, and started kind of in this little bloggy area but it clearly was better suited than anything else that we saw for a publisher. You know, we were, a, you know, a somewhat serious publisher, which meant we weren't going to use WordPress. We're going to use something more serious. And there it was, and it was open source and that was helpful. But at that stage, you know, we were growing and so was, so was he. And so there was a, uh, a, a kind of synergy there, but we were one of many, but I'm just sort of curious how, if you have any insights into how, an already successful, large-ish open source operation grows? Well, here again, I should uh, by no means <laughs> be thought of as giving expert insight into this, but just colloquially, my, uh, or anecdotally, my observations about Drupal kind of run as follows. I tried Drupal for the first time, boy, back in the Drupal 5 days, uh, which for people who have been in the Drupal community for long know that that was kind of prehistory uh, uh, up to like Drupal 6 is when things really kind of started getting going, I think. Uh, so I tried it before things really got the kind of traction and momentum needed to capture the average developer, I think. And then I, I've seen it since then go through, I think 
those stages that you propose are a pretty good framework. Uh, go from being new and not well understood, probably not well marketed or represented. Uh, part of the reason I, I said that I discovered it back in Drupal 5, I didn't pick it up at, at that point. Uh, I kind of went away and I used WordPress actually for a while. And then I came back and found it again in the Drupal 6 version cycle. And I guess some, something flipped and I was ready for it then. Uh, not, not least of all, I think the, there had been some serious maturing in the software and the community. And so then it was kind of in the new phase. And then there was kind of a, a hot phase, I think, as, as you talk about during which there was a rapid influx of interest and contribution and press. And by, boy, that we were kind of in that phase for a number of years. And then I kind of feel like when we got to Drupal 8, we started getting into the big phase where now there's a lot more discussion of enterprise deployment and more moving away from, or at least maybe I should say adding to what previously was discussion mostly of how can I get X website to look good and do the basic things that I want and kind of uh, a presupposition that it was going to be like uh, the WordPress install kind of on your uh, GoDaddy hosting or something, you know, you spin it up with one of those, uh, I can't even can't even think of the names of them anymore, but one of those bits yeah. of software where you just tell it, give me WordPress or give me Drupal or give me Joomla. Um, and that was kind of the scale and, and style uh, in the early days. And then getting into, as I say, that big phase, then questions started, the, the big questions that got a lot of discussion started being things like, how do we do a uh, multi-stage like dev stage prod kind of workflow and how do we uh, how do we scale uh, for uh, performance and scalability kinds of questions how do we work with a cdn a content delivery network or um, scale to handle a thousand requests in a minute you know whatever other other kind of thing that your excited but small audience isn't concerned with and, and I, I'd say we're still in, I mean, is there something after big? I don't know, but we're, <laughs> we're <definitely> immense, <laughs> irreplaceable. It's, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. I don't, well, I don't know. You, I don't know if, are you allowed to talk about some of the sites you've worked on, but <laughs> is, it, is it top secret? But I'm all, I'm constantly kind of impressed by, by some of the companies and entities that are using Drupal. I find out, you know, some massive entity is using Drupal yeah. and I, you know, I'm still, I'm still impressed by that. It's still exciting for me because, you know, back in the day when Linux journals first started, and even when I first started working on the Linux journal site, um, you know, God, it was, it was in the fours, by the way, it was like 4.6, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. When I started, it was 4.6 and we moved, I was part of the migration up to five, which was, which went actually like through 4.7 on the road and then stopped at five. Um, but yeah, so even still to me, it's very exciting to see, to see, you know, where it's gone. And I mean, I know, you know, just some like kind of fun examples, like I know Godiva is on, <laughs> is on Drupal and I find that very appealing because, you know, who doesn't love good chocolate or, you know, yeah. Anyway, but I, I wondered if you could talk about some of the like really massive, impressive sites that are that are running Drupal that you know of. Yeah. I bet you can think of more examples than I can. Well, there are a few that I've worked on that I've found really exciting. Um, the the first one that comes to mind is uh, Nasdaq, uh, which wow, uh, it's it's no, I can't the the specific entity is no longer NASDAQ. I, I think it was, well, I shouldn't talk about things I, I am not confident about, but some years ago, right around the time 
Drupal 7 was becoming Drupal 8. Acquia worked with NASDAQ to create a platform for their uh, investor websites. All the companies that uh, are on the NASDAQ stock exchange who, who, are, uh, who are using NASDAQ in that sense, they have investor websites that are for the people who are investing in a given company. It's kind of kind of meta, I suppose. It's uh, like, investor relations, I think is what it's called. I remember yeah. this because I, I wrote about it when it happened for, on Linux Journal because I saw okay. Andrew post about it and it was big news, right? So, yeah, that's right. So yeah, investor relations platform is is how we talked about it. You can tell it's been a while because I can't even think of of that. But there uh, there was it was like a five ish thousand website platform at the time. So what we built was a Drupal application, really an installation profile like what you're working on now, Catherine. Actually, so the Nasdaq investor relationship platform was a private distribution or installation profile more technically that powered some 5,000 investor relationship websites. And the scale of that is obvious. I don't know how many websites are on it now, but it was 4,000 something was, was what we started with. My, one of my favorite things that I've ever done with Drupal is that I was for a period of time, the open source product maintainer for the White House petitions platform. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, it, it was a huge project, huge national interest, of course, and huge technical complexity as well. It, I was it, hoping uh, you would mention that one because that's very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm trying to think of, of some of the others that have been really noteworthy. I know the Department of Defense had something on there. I, I don't know if, if all of these are, are still current, but Sony BMG at least used to have every single one of their artists on, on Drupal. Um, not, not many, not many uh, projects can claim both the White House and Weird Al Yankovic um, <laughs> <laughs> at the same time. That's but, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, too funny. Yeah, so uh, in short, in summary, I suppose you, you, Drupal has come a really, really long way since, uh, well, since Doc and I, I guess, started with it way back in the dark ages. Yeah, look where you brought it. <laughs> yep, it was all us. <laughs> I don't even I know what not. the version was. What would it have been in 2003? Like, um, even have a version it, number? It may then? have been four or something at that point. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I guess we the did. First pay version for it, I knew it, of was 4.6. Yeah, but what I do remember is that um, I think we had a question for Dries, and I think he responded with, "You're only you're using." I hear there's a whole bunch of critical responses like you you should be doing this and this and this. So yeah, okay, you know. But I think that was what Phil, you know, the guy who started the magazine was the was our techie. I think it was just before you yeah. came, Catherine. Yeah, it's started, actually. But. When, when I started, so Linux Journal was very much a, a print magazine, and that was the mm -hmm. focus. And yeah. there was a website that was kind of, frankly, an afterthought. It was some blogs, and it didn't really share content at all. Um, and so when I came on, one of the, the, the main things that I was involved in is moving it to a digital product and making it more of a yeah, you know, more of the thing, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, um, the uh, magazine, yeah, yeah, digital we, magazine platform. And yeah, so that, became, and that was a huge undertaking. We became digital first. That's what they call it. You know, yes, digital exactly. First, digital right. first. And, and, yeah. you know, we grew the traffic tremendously from, from going to, you know, the, starting with the, the five, the Drupal five site, the traffic went way, way up, but even more so actually after, I think about a year and a half later, maybe two years later, when we moved to Drupal six, the traffic just shot up because I think that, you know, the Drupal itself grew to the point where it was easier for me 
to make it into a very robust publication. So, you know, we were basically, you know, I was standing on Travis's shoulders at that point, you know, hmm. benefiting from all the great work that, that uh, you know, all the Drupal contributors were doing. That, that's the thing that I actually enjoy most about the kind of work that I get to do is I, I like to think that the work that I'm doing now is helping people who used to be in my position make a better online experience for their users because I've already gone through that, <laughs> that gauntlet and, um, and now, you know, I may be able to give back a little bit to help people who are in that position. Which is Absolutely. a really cool feeling, and that to be kind honest. Of makes, that actually transitions nicely into one of the things that I wanted to say about mentorship in open source. And that is that everything that you do in the open can be a, a gift, if you will, of mentorship to people you'll never know. When I got started with Drupal, I was not a back-end developer. Uh, to call me a developer at all would have been generous, I think. So I began really as a, a site builder and a themer. And um, back in the Drupal 6 days, there was a my favorite starter theme. And this is the base theme that I built my customer designs on top of called Zen. Oh and yeah, Linux Journal was Zen. Drupal six Linux Journal was a Zen theme. Nice. <laughs> <Sub -theme. Yep. laughs> I loved Zen, and Zen was was kind of my first real open source experience. Uh, the thing that really got me hooked. Uh, if John Albin uh, hears this, thank you. <laughs> uh, I remember. The first time I wanted to build a, a Zen sub theme, I opened up the code for the page template uh, and the, the template file in Zen itself had this dozens or hundred line comment at the top of the file that said things like, this is the page template file. Contained in here is the outermost shell of the HTML uh, along with the body and the the section containers, which incidentally we followed X design pattern for doing our columns, and then it listed to an a list apart article that explained the the genesis and theory behind this particular CSS column strategy, and then just went on with all of these kinds of we made this decision because of X. Here's a link to an article that that explains how you can do it. And this one file in this open source project became like a mentorship experience for me that the maintainer couldn't have known was coming. I don't, I don't even know how long it, the, those details had been in the code by the time that I read them. Uh, and I'm sure he has, or they, it wasn't just John Alvin, of course, but I'm sure the contributors to that project they could never have guessed how many people that they were kind of from a distance helping them build their careers like they did mine. Um, and so when I think about mentorship, person to person, like one-on-one -on -one kind of mentorship is incredible. And it's a huge thing that deserves discussion. But I kind of think about everything that I do with software as being a mentorship activity writing the documentation for people who will use my software, writing inline code comments, the, the way that I structure and design my code, uh, code reviews that, that I do. Like code reviews are one of, one of uh, the least appreciated forms of mentorship, I feel like. Uh, if, if you're working on a project that is big or significant enough, that you have multiple contributors, I hope that you're reviewing each other's code because that's such a great context for knowledge transfer. And I've tried to use my code reviews kind of like to create an, an experience similar to what I had with the Zen uh, theme framework, where if I find something in your code that I think has an opportunity for improvement, I'll comment on it and then I'll say, here's why this should be X instead of Y. And 
here's a link to maybe API documentation or an article or even a book or something that discusses the paradigm that uh, motive that would motivate me to do it this way instead of the way that it's been done here. And I've I've been in a software architect role and a, a team lead kind of role uh, over a number of years. And I've been able to watch people who were on my teams grow over time. And a lot of that growth has just been as a result of those kinds of by the way kind of interactions, you know, like never a kind of let's sit down once a week and, and have a, let's have a mentorship today, you know, right. <laughs> like never anything that formal, just transfer the knowledge you have whenever you bump into people. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I've learned a lot of my uh, uh, efficiency strategies from you, Travis. Thank you. That's <laughs> pretty great. Yeah. It's funny. Like I, I think, you know, before I, I was hired, actually, I don't know, probably Adam Honick or somebody asked me as an interview question, something about code reviews and how I felt about it. And I remember my reaction because I kind of in, inferred through by what he was saying that some people don't like code review, don't like their code mm -hmm. to be reviewed. And I remember thinking that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Why would you not want somebody better at this than you to review right. your code? I was like, are you kidding? Yes, please, please review my code and tell me how to do it better. Because yeah, I just remember thinking that was so exciting because I had had so you know, such limited opportunities for that before. But anyway, yes, review each other's code for sure. What can you tell us about how Orca came to be? Orca has been around as a project um, slightly longer than I have been in engineering. The kind of idea of it, I think, was percolating for quite a while. And uh, as I said, I was brought into engineering specifically to make it a reality, to execute on it and create the application and kind of shepherd the, the program from a technical perspective. Uh, it, it became something actually usable in, I don't know, maybe six months or something like that. We, okay. I, I had the good fortune time. of working closely with you and Adam Honick on getting the lightning integration going very early on. And um, there, was, there was working software there, uh, that partnership, if you will, long before it really uh, gained any traction or, or stability sufficient to really deploy fully, but uh, after, uh, after it did become the standard and not only the standard in terms of policy, but actually rolled out and, and people actively depending on it, uh, it wasn't too long before we got approval to open source it. And so I don't know if that was within the first year or something. Okay. And for, for your listeners, that's when it, probably starts to matter. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, was yeah, that's funny. yeah, that was my next question. Like, so I guess I didn't realize how, how young a project it was when I came along. So that's interesting. But um, yeah, so, so tell us a little bit more about, I mean, I suppose the decision to open source it is probably pretty obvious just because that's in sort of the company DNA. But um, so what is that process like? How, you know, how is the process of taking something that is internal and releasing it out in the wild? In principle, that can be very simple. It can be as little as just making your GitHub or GitLab repository, whatever version control platform you use, can be as little as just making it public. Uh, in the case of Orca and many similar PHP packages, it involves publishing it on packages for composer-based installation. Um, and at Acquia, we have an official process that we go through to evaluate candidates for open sourcing to ensure that they abide by certain quality standards and that they don't include 
proprietary information or, or right. open other vulnerabilities for the company. And then it kind of, kind of comes down to uh, have a, a good readme and go for it. <laughs> right. No. Awesome. Well, in, in, it helps uh, also. I'm oh, sorry. My, go ahead, Petra. Oh, I was going to say in my experience, um, especially with um, companies that I've worked with um, and we're talking about right now, I'm with HPE and uh, prior to that, well, Catherine, uh, you know, said uh, earlier, um, you know, Cray, but uh, I'm, I was part of an acquisition into HPE, but prior to that IBM, our process was very, very, very legal heavy. We had uh, attorneys specializing in, um, in open source licensing and just doing their due diligence to make sure, like you mentioned, make sure that we are only putting out our code, our code that is also not um, cannot be seen like bits and pieces as, as proprietary, but it was just like a very heavy legal, uh, process. And I don't know if that's the experience you've, uh, had as well. At Acquia, the process has not been that heavy on the legal side. There are a, a small number of related gates, but on the whole, as Catherine said, the, the genesis of Acquia was as a Drupal-based company and, and employees that really began in the Drupal community. And so there's always been a very strong open source ethos. And aside from the lawyers and the folks whose job description involves more um, corporate mentality, I suppose, legal self-protection kinds of interests. Uh, amongst the developers and everyone in the product and engineering organizations, to say nothing of professional services, they already have a strong bent toward open source contribution. In fact, that's one of the things that I think draws people to execution and delivery roles within Acquia. I know it was for me. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's, yeah, the aforementioned uh, Millennium Falcon analogy is, mm -hmm. is kind of, I mean, getting to be that involved in not only contributing to Drupal, um, but be, again, being mentored by, I mean, the absolute top Drupal developers. It was, de I mean, you know, sign me up, pinch me. Um, yeah, so I, I would also guess when you're when you're taking a project and releasing it into the wild, as I said, uh, really uh, open sourcing it, it helps when you write really good code and not to you know, uh, no, no. Actually, I, I make no apology about plugging Travis's skills again. <laughs> Travis writes elegant code. He writes really beautiful, readable code and he's quite passionate about code quality. So when your code is already really, really solid, I, I, I feel like it must be easier, obviously, to then go release it. Whereas I, I often wonder sometimes if, if there is a cleanup process, you know, when, when things are released, which I suspect you didn't really have to do. Well, uh, I am, I am, uh, as you say, I'm passionate about these things and very detail oriented. And so it may be the case that I was better prepared with my particular project to open source it than other people might be. But I think that when you know that there are going to be thousands of potential eyeballs <laughs> on your work product, that, that tends to make you want to make it really high quality. Um, I, I really enjoy that pressure, that motivation to do great work and to make it accessible. I enjoy writing documentation that is adequate for someone to come into my project from the outside and be able to understand it and become an effective user or even a contributor. So regardless of the complexity of what I'm releasing, 
there is going to be a certain amount of cleanup and preparation for putting it out there. Um, so if I am a company that is not Acquia or I, I'm any Drupal developer and I want to start using Orca, how do I do that? I mean, obviously you go to the project page, which I will link to in the description of this podcast. Um, but how, how hard is it, it, it going to be for somebody new to Orca to get set up with Orca? Sure. Well, maybe I should preface my answer to that question by explaining who would want to use Orca. And the answer to that question is that anyone who has an interest in the ongoing functioning of Drupal adjacent software, including Drupal modules, themes, installation profiles, as well as composer packages or anything else that is meant to work within or alongside a functioning Drupal application, such people are the target users of Orca. And the service that Orca provides for those people is that it creates a repeatable standard test scenario. The, uh, it creates a, a fixture, which in automated testing terminology just means whatever has to be true in the universe for your tests to succeed. And so in the case of a, a Drupal module or other extension, you need to have a functioning Drupal site. So ORCA, which incidentally, uh, O-R-C-A stands for Official Representative Customer Application. And it, it um, spins up not just any Drupal site or application, but it's intended to be kind of a codification of Acquia's idea of what a standard or best practices Drupal ap application looks like. And so it, it spins that up, creates an application that's, that's realistic in nature. It, it actually reflects something that would go into production so that you can be testing in a, a real life or life-like situation. Uh, and then it performs various static code analysis tests and discovers and runs automated tests. And then it does this in a number of different permutations of scenarios, including multiple versions of Drupal core, uh, including only the package under test or all the packages that the company in question owns. So having prefaced with that general high level explanation of what Orca is and does, uh, the intended user would be someone who has modules to test or who has, that is modules that they own, maintain, or are responsible for, or that uses a relatively consistent set of modules that they want to ensure are going to keep working with one another now and in the future, like maybe a professional services organization that almost always uses, you know, 10 or 15 of the same modules together. So they want to know if they're going to break. And your direct question then was, how would a company get started? And to get started with Orca, there are a few different ways to use it. The, the most central way, the chief design role or, or use case, I should say, is for using Orca to drive the automated tests on a CI or continuous integration platform or workflow. And Orca comes with Travis CI integration templates and the like out of the box. And for most of Acquia's internal users, implementing it has been a, a mere matter of 
having a Travis CI account and copying in the example Travis.yaml file and making minor tweaks to it. Some of our internal products have done almost nothing but copy the template file and change the name in it. For, an, for a company external to Acquia, there's there would be that, um, that is copying the, the template files, getting them in place on Travis CI or, or you know, turning on your Travis CI integration. Uh, and then you just need to make Orca aware of the packages that you're going to be pulling in and testing, which is also a pretty simple matter of just specifying them in a, a YAML file and telling Orca where to find it. So does it work with, with other uh, CI platforms? Like, can I use it with not Travis, like Jenkins or something else? Yeah, Orca can be can be used in innumerable different contexts. I should explain that when we talk about Orca, we're, there, there may be three things that we have in mind. One would be the project or the program that we talked about at Acquia. Uh, another would be the total integration, which involves Travis CI by default. The other is the Orca CLI or command line interface, right. the uh, terminal application for which the Travis CI scripts and configurations are really just a, a thin interface. Uh, really, it's just a handful of scripts that contain the CLI commands kind of pre pre-plugged in, if you will. But the CLI can be used in any context. Uh, I like Git's nomenclature, that is the version control system Git. Talks, the documentation talks about the porcelain interface and the plumbing interface. The uh, apt, if humorous, nomenclature referring to the fact that uh, a, in, a, in a person's bathroom, they have the interface that they want to interact with, like the sink, for example, the, the porcelain. And the average person, that's all they care about. But when the plumber comes, they want to get under the sink and work with the actual uh, pipes and, and everything underneath the kind of polished outer facade. Right. And <laughs> Uh, Orca is the same way. There's there's the porcelain interface that's all that most people care about or need to care about, which is just the Travis CI thin configuration. Uh, just pop that script in and it goes, and that's all that most people want to know. Uh, but under the hood, there's the CLI command, which is very robust. It it can function and be made to function in pretty pretty much any context where you have a, a Nix shell like bash. Um, so making it work on circle CI or GitHub Actions or just uh, vanilla Jenkins or whatever you like is, would be a fairly straightforward thing. You could probably even in many of those contexts, just copy the Travis CI scripts that are already a part of Orca and plug them into whatever YAML file or what have you is the integration point for your CI system. So if we kind of zoom out a little bit and think more broadly beyond Orca, beyond Drupal even. So I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening are you know, automated testing, continuous integration experts, but a lot aren't. Um, and as we know, a lot of people don't write tests for, <laughs> for their code. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about automated testing theory and and first of all, why, why you should be writing tests because maybe it's not that obvious. You know, why is it worth putting in the time to write automated tests, number one? And number two, what's the easiest way to get started and the most, let's say, sustainable way to get started? I think that second question is probably the most important one because many companies struggle with just... Yeah 
kicking things off. I mean, you, yeah. you've got an idea, you've, you know, you, you know, which tests you want to run. It's just getting that implemented and into an existing framework. That's the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. It, and it has been not only my observation, but also my personal experience that that first hurdle getting over that first hurdle from zero to anything non-zero <laughs> for uh, using automated testing is a huge hurdle and it's it's daunting for probably most people so if i were to take your questions in the order that you asked them catherine i would say that the reason to actually let's start with really simple what is automated testing and I would say that automated testing is simply the process of creating some sort of automation that exercises your software. That is to say, it runs your software uh, and observes the outcome to ensure that it does what you expect it to do in a given context. And there are a lot of different frameworks or platforms for this, um, skipping past that and asking why would you want to do that, there are a few important reasons. The reason that I like to start with that most people don't talk about is that it helps your design and it helps it in a few different ways. The first way is that if you have to make your software in a way that a robot could also use it. You're forced to design it with certain quality attributes that wouldn't come up if you were just writing it for your primary use case. And as it happens, those attributes that make it more testable are also the attributes that increase quality, like helpful abstractions, cohesiveness of design, single responsibility principle um, for for the nerds the liskov substitution principle it probably won't even talk about it but one must one must use the name if one's talking about automated testing and geeking out a little bit uh, all of those design principles of which there are many are are principles which when followed improve the actual quality of your software they make it more maintainable easier to understand and writing for automated testing or with automated testing in mind forces you to observe those patterns as well. So that's, that's the first reason, is it just nudges you in the direction of better software design. And secondly, it forces you to think about the outcome of your software before you think about the mechanics. If you begin by asking yourself, how am I going to verify that this works? It puts you in a different mindset than the programmer tends to be in when they begin. Most programmers, when you sit them in front of a keyboard, start immediately thinking about, right, what design pattern am I gonna use here? Or what, what uh, directory or class structure or even which language am I going to choose? Uh, and start thinking about low-level implementation details instead of thinking about what matters first, which is business outcomes. You know, we only have jobs doing this, this uh, information technology type work or programming work that we enjoy so much because it brings business value to someone. So if you start by asking those business questions, which is what's necessary to be able to test your outcomes, uh, then that's going to get you thinking in a more productive way uh, as someone who's actually bringing value to their employer and to the world. Now, once you're thinking in those terms, bringing value, uh, then it becomes evident that you want your work to continue to bring value over time as the marketplace and the employers technical and other constraints change over time as technology evolves and people depend on new versions of 
of the OS that you're aiming at or the server software that you're deploying on. Uh, once, once you maintain more than one piece of software, uh, and probably before that, it's just too much to keep up with all the updates, the patches, the security fixes, and everything that go into the long, long list of pieces of software that any application depends on. So you want a robot to be doing that. Uh, you, you want an automated process that can run on a regular basis without human intervention and can just try different permutations and then set, ping you on Slack or send you an email when something breaks. Thank goodness for containers. <laughs> <laughs> Helps simplify a lot of the uh, various uh, software implementations and uh, library revisions and so forth. It's just, it be, you're right. It becomes a huge headache when, when, um, when, you, when you try to think about all the variations and combinations of softwares and software versions that you have to work with. So I wondered if maybe, so based on my personal experience, and I, I guess I, I, I mentioned that I never talk about what I do, but I thought I should. I wanted to make sure to actually tell people that listen to this show what I actually do in, in real life. So I mentioned I used to work with Travis and, and um, I used to work on a Drupal distribution that Acquia maintains called Lightning. I think Travis mentioned it earlier. Now I actually work on a different Drupal 9 distribution that it's an opinionated Drupal 9 distribution called Acquia CMS um, for running low code sites on, on the Acquia hosting platform. It's, it's very cool. I mean, obviously, because I helped make it, but it's a, I like to think of it as a more approachable Drupal. I think people, are, a lot of people are a little bit intimidated by Drupal's learning curve, and I think this, this uh, solves that a bit. But um, what I was going to say, you know, in the, in the context of that is automated testing is absolutely essential to our, our development process, but at the same time, it can, uh, how would I put this? It can create bottlenecks. Like we recently struggled quite a bit with, um, I don't know, just d developer experience in terms of, you know, just if you, I w I'm not going to say overdo testing, but you need to structure your tests in such a way that you are not sabotaging your own efficiency, I guess, is if, if that's, and I, w I wondered if, if Travis could speak to that a little bit, because frankly, <laughs> a long conversation with Travis is, is how, what helped me solve this problem for our team. And that's just, you know, in terms of breaking up jobs into uh, different groups and, 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 and testing in a way that is, again, developer friendly and, and only run, you know, running certain tests when you need to and not you know, at other times. And I just kind of wondered if we could go into a little bit of that theory because it might help other people. Sure. So automated tests are software. I think that that recognition is fundamental to thinking well about the question you, or the subject you raise here. When you consider that automated tests are themselves software, a number of insights arise. The first of which is that they are also subject to quality concerns. And it is very easy to write fragile tests in the same way that you can write fragile production code. And as most people, when they first start to understand things, dive in with more enthusiasm than understanding, <laughs> uh, people who are learning how to do automated testing can easily follow their excitement past their level of competence and into quagmires of over-specified tests, over-complicated tests, tests that depend on too much extraneous detail and therefore become costly to maintain, costly to execute. Some of the dynamics that you're referring to when you talk about a testing setup being costly for a development team or having a negative effect on the developer experience include such things as First of all, the difficulty of setting up your test framework. 
one of the importances of a CI setup in general, uh, and as Petros mentions, uh, containers as one way of solving for this kind of problem, is that not every developer has to solve the problem on their own. Uh, I remember other teams that I've been on in the past where you spend the first week with your of your onboarding just having someone more senior sit down with you and help you set up your computer and install an AMP stack and get your IDE going and Xdebug plugged in and and everything. And it, it's a huge drain. And then you still have the, it works on my machine problem. There's maybe nothing more frustrating for a developer than to have something work beautifully on their own development environment and then to commit it to the repo or push it up to uh, a pre-prod environment and have it not do the same thing that it did for them locally. So that is one problem that on the one hand can be addressed by automation, but on the other hand uh, can also cause a difficulty. You have to, you have to get your developers used to a workflow that involves CD or CI, uh, CD being continuous delivery. I think we already said that CI is continuous integration. We didn't. Um, uh, it, in other words, it's kind of a, a mindset and a discipline, and it just has to be learned a little bit. Possibly, well, there are two, two other challenges that can arise that seem to me to be in competition for the next most significant. The first one is the difficulty of maintaining working tests as a system evolves over time. I talked about tests being fragile or brittle, over-specifying tests, uh, other forms of creating tests that are just hard to maintain. Uh, if you, for example, let, let's take a common Drupal scenario. Say you've got a test where you've got a config form, you need to navigate to a given URL and then log in as a given user and then interact with the form in some way. If your test is written in such a way that it depends on, let's say, uh, a CSS class uh, being present or used in a, in a specific way on your front page in order to log in, then something that your themer does could break one of your automated tests that has nothing whatsoever to do with that just because your test needed you to log in before it could exercise the form. And now when that CSS class moves or goes away, your, uh, your test that was depending on that suddenly starts breaking and nobody knows why. Uh, the reason would be because it was dependent on irrelevant or extraneous details. And writing code that's not subject to that kind of weakness in automated tests is a challenge. Um, I, I won't go further into that, I think, at the moment. But the, the other or the next issue that stands out to me is the simple overhead of keeping tests working when you make changes to the system. I think anybody who's been working with automated testing in a team context, or even on their own, frankly, has probably had the experience of making a change in one part of the software and then having tech tests completely on the other side of the application break. And sometimes they break for good reasons because- Every time, every time for me. Every time for you. I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way, you know. Sometimes they break for good reasons because the change that you made actually broke business logic or or application functionality. Other times your tests break just because they were fragile tests. And especially when you're getting started, or Catherine, as you talk about getting in a team started with these kinds of practices when they're unfamiliar with them, uh, that's, that's a real challenge to figure out 
just to, to navigate this new space. So yeah, um, I think we've been we've been going a while now. It's probably about time to wrap it up. Doc, do you have any final thoughts? No, about... that uh, I think this is really good stuff, and yeah, um, I think so too. And I thank you a lot for being on here. This is a it's a good show. Yeah, I think this My is going to be really helpful to a lot of uh, open source developers out there and people who are interested in contributing. So That's if you've cool. made it this far, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, to Petros and thank you to Travis for, for being here. Um, and you know, if, if you have any questions about any of this, please feel free to reach out to us through the podcast and uh, you know, we can forward your questions along to, and well, frankly, anyone relevant. What are we? Oh, we are um, info at reality2cast.com. I believe you can reach us there. Um, thanks. Great, thank you.